Crazy Chester Radio Hour. I have two great guests today. James LeBlanc is an artist, singer, songwriter, and musician. His latest record, Nature of the Beast, just came out on Dreamline Records. And uh, he's been a successful uh, songwriter in the country field for many years now. And my second guest is Jimmy Nuts. Jimmy is a Grammy-winning recording engineer, producer, musician. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy and James go back long ways. They grew up in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. So uh, how did the two of you meet? First week of seventh grade, right? I don't think so. Somebody told me that a guy named James LeBlanc what, can I, can we say ass on this radio? I guess I just did. <laughs> now you just did. <laughs> Someone told me that a guy named James LeBlanc wanted to kick my ass. I don't even remember that. I remember that. It's true. It happened. And so we, we met and, and became friends immediately. You know somehow. how many people's asses I've kicked in my life? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> <laughs> so were both of you already into music by then? Yeah. Yeah. So he, that, he was way into, you know, he had been playing quite a bit longer than I had. Um, let's see, how how old were we, 12 at that point? Yeah, like 82. 12? Yeah. That makes us 12. Yeah, so I was just getting into learning how to play guitar and drums, and, and he, he'd already been playing I'd for a while. I'd been playing about five years by then. Yeah. You know, already into it pretty yeah. good. So music's always been common ground for that's it yeah. from the beginning all the way to now so as far as you actually making music together or collaborating on music what was some of the early stuff you guys did together remember that song rough times we rough wrote times yeah we wrote first time i ever co-wrote a song me too ever yeah it was probably right around that time yeah. it wasn't long after no. no you guys already had a band going oh that's right with, you came uh, into jennifer mcmullen and ken monk and we had that guitar player, Joey Benner. Uh, okay, that's right. Right, remember? Yeah, that's right. And so I, I kind of weaseled my way into their group. They were already playing. And, we had... And, uh, yeah. And then shortly after, we wrote, wrote a song together, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Started playing music. Started writing music. Yeah. Started playing gigs. Yeah. And then not too long after that, another year or so, maybe, is when you got your Tascam 4-track. Yeah. Started learning how to do home four-track recordings to cassette tape had a good ear immediately so, I, know, I, rem I remember that so that's when you're the, the, the engineer seat was planning yeah yeah i was the guy that knew how to hook up a pa <laughs> <laughs> and make sound happen and, yeah uh, man you always had the ears uh, always uh, so would you mainly like play locally around shreveport at that time yeah Played 
school functions. Friends of ours would have parties at clubhouses of apartment complexes that hire us to play. And uh, we were, you know, uh, we played the YMCA. Remember that gig we did out at yeah. the YMCA somewhere? We did several of those, actually. Uh-huh. One of them was with your brother-in-law That's because right. I just saw that picture the other day. That's right. And we played at LSUS. Uh, That's right. A, Our buddy's was, dad had a yeah. put on these little. Yeah. I remember that the Cotton Country Cloggers were on the same bill. You remember that, man? Well, I do now that you say it. Those old people that were clogging, and then it was us. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it was us and then them, but Uh that's really hilarious. Yeah. The Cotton Country Cloggers. (laughs) We're talking about history. That's right. (laughs) And we actually have have a picture from that show in my office. Is that the one where you jumped? Yeah. My sister sister was really into photography at the time, and she would show up and take pictures of us. And uh, we had it all planned out that I guess that I was going to jump off an amp at some point. And (laughs) she happened to capture that, and it's on my wall in my office. Yeah. Yeah. So... How did the whole music thing come from? Did any of you have like music run in the family, or where did you guys did. soak it up? My dad was a guitar player just for a hobby. He he worked at a factory, but he played guitar and and my mom really loved music and my and her mom liked to write lyrics and her dad played guitar, so I kind of showed up here on the planet with with it already in me and uh man i mean for as long as i can remember i played guitar as long as i can remember and and then right after i started learning how to read and write i started you know writing little little verses that rhymed like immediately i just and, and i mean it was just it just happened it was just something that happened and it's always been there yeah so on your record it's mostly originals there's mm-hmm. also one of, of your son's songs but there's also a version of beings to shell Silverstein. Yeah. so there's a connection there with your dad too absolutely it? man he you know he, he he liked to play guitar as a hobby and sing he he had a great baritone voice and he liked to do it as a hobby but but he was pretty pretty dang good good enough to entertain at family functions you know my you know, my grandma had five sisters, and so they were they were always wanting him to play at, at all the time. And so, man, you know, he was always the entertainment. And so he picked songs that he liked, and he had a kind of an eclectic uh, taste in music. But that was just a song that he heard an act called The Brothers Four uh, on the radio. Had a hit with that song, Beans. And so that's where he learned it. And so uh, I learned it because he learned it. So I, I, I learned most of everything he did. And so, yeah. But, yeah, he played that all the time, all the time. Played it around the kitchen table. I've been hearing that song yeah. all my life. Yeah, I, I totally remember him. He, you know, he taught me that song, too, sitting at James' <laughs> yeah. kitchen table. Yeah, and that's right. Taught me how to play Nine Pound Hammer, you know, oh, stuff yeah. like that. So That's it. Yeah. Was there any particular point in... in in both views, like life, where you thought, well, this is going to be the career choice too, or is it like gradually evolved that way? I mean, I I, I knew it was for me uh, from before I was twenty. I just I knew that that somehow, some way, I was going to carve a life out. 
and and I that's what I did you know and, I'm, and my, my dad was kind of a man of few words but I did ask him one time what he thought I said I'm thinking about doing this like for a career and for a life or whatever you know what do you think and he said he said, I never really had a dream or, or anything like that that was burning inside of me. He said, but if I did, he said, I would have gone for it with all of my heart. And so that was kind of my, I kind of got what he was trying to say, go for it. And so I did, and, you know, and it's been pretty cool so far. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, me too. I, I, It's always what I've wanted to do ever since... I got into music at 12 years old. I mean, it, we used to dream about, you know, mm -hmm. going out on the road and, and doing, you know, being traveling musicians and all that stuff. There have been different times in my life where I've doubted that I was going to be able to do it, especially when I got married and had a kid. I kind of put it on the back burner for about five years and just said, you know, I'm just going to get a different career and just, you know, take care of my family. And But, man, it just it just starts building back inside of you, you know, and I just couldn't escape it. I just, just wanted back in so bad, you know? So anyway, it, you know, every move I've ever made in my life has been to find a better situation, a, a better music situation. And, um, so yeah, man. Was it around the same time when you moved to Texas mm -hmm. together? Yeah. Well, I moved to Dallas okay, first. Yeah. I, I, I went, uh, let's see. About a year out of high school, I moved to Dallas, kind of under the guise that I would go to some college. My dad was encouraging me to go to college, so I went there to kind of appease him, but really I was there to find some bands and clubs to play in, which I did, and, and I went to college for a year, uh, or a couple years, but anyway. Um, and then James called, or came, actually came and visited, and said, hey, man, we're going to move to Austin, Texas. You know, are you in? And so he said, hell yeah. So we all picked up and moved to Austin, Texas uh, in about, was it 93, 92? 92. 92. We were 21. Yeah. So uh, what were some of the, the bands or names of the bands you had out there? That was the, one was the Underground. We called ourselves the Underground. Yeah, that was in, when, while we were in Louisiana. And then we called ourselves Invisible Nature. Invisible Nature, yeah. That's what we, when we moved to Austin, we were still called Invisible Nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't have great band names. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you play drums and bass and you mentioned guitar too. Uh -huh. What were you playing back then? Um, let's see. I was playing guitar. I was playing guitar. I was rhythm guitar. And, uh, well, and then our bass player in Invisible Nature quit and I moved over to bass at that point um, yeah yeah but i played i started playing drums in the beginning but i quickly switched to guitar and never really played drums in a band until i moved to muscle shoals i mean i played drums but not i wasn't the drummer in a band until i moved here so right on. yeah did you uh at that point already have some experiences in the recording studio well, let's see. Yeah. Well, I mean, we started on his Tascam 4-track, which you can carry anywhere. Yeah. So, but then I remember we saved up some gig money, and the first place we went was that guy Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson's Johnson, place. Yeah. Not not Muscle Shoals yeah. Jimmy Johnson, but yeah. a, a Shreveport Jimmy Johnson. Right. We went out there and did a little four-song thing. Yeah. 
So we went. So that was interesting. Yeah. That was the first time I'm, for uh, for me. What did, what did we cut besides Andy Griffith? We cut instrumental. Uh, Were you singing? Uh. Uh-uh. I was singing. Yeah. Uh, okay. Disorder. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then, yeah, live or die. Yeah. See, James, when we were young, he he was the singer of the band. At some point, point his voice kind of changed, and he and and I got really into REM, and and I guess you did as well. And we were kind of into alternative rock, and so I started writing some stuff kind of in that vein, and and kind of you know, which is funny now, became the singer, <laughs> which I'm not much of a singer, but I could kind of sing that type stuff. And I guess while his voice was kind of <laughs> re-establishing itself as a, uh, you know, as a, as a teenager, I, I sang a little bit. But And we cut some of my songs at this at our first studio yeah, experience. Uh, 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 that's the only and, and a song you wrote, too, you know. Oh, yeah, Andy Griffith, Disorder, Live or Die. Yeah, okay. I think there was another one. But I can't remember what that yeah. one was. So we did that. And then a, a little while later, we saved some more gig money and went to Nightwing. I thought we won a contest. And Maybe that was it. It was two different. The okay. record got cut at Nightwing. Okay. That was, is that why you were in Texas? Because Danny Wilder wound up. Yeah, playing, yeah, playing that, on the yeah, that I didn't play on the record. But then we yeah. did win a contest. Won it, yeah, yeah, and we went live in the studio, but we, no overdose. It was right. absolutely live, right? And just cut a set. Yeah, and Ron Capone was our engineer. Yeah, he was he engineered a bunch yeah, of Elvis stuff. Ron Capone, you know, so he was good too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, those were good recordings. Nightwing was a an amazing studio. Absolutely. Uh, state of the art for the time, and I, I can't really remember now how it wound up being, you know, there in Shreveport. But it was absolutely a state of the art studio. Yeah, I do remember that. And I do remember the first time I walked into Nightwing. I mean, the first studio experience we had was kind of in a guy's garage with like carpet on the walls and stuff like that. So it was cool to be there, but it wasn't a real studio. But I remember the first time I walked into Nightwing, I was just like blown away. Just yeah. Like, man, the studio, yeah. the studio is somewhere I want to be, you know? Yeah. So that was fairly important to you. Definitely. Definitely. I remember just being really impressed by that, being in that space, you know? How long did you guys... Uh, stay in Texas. I stayed there for eight years. I came back yeah. to my hometown at the end of '93 to help my mom with my dad. My dad passed in February '94, and you know, my my dad asked me. He was like, "You need to you need to come home and take care of your mama." So I said, "Okay." So, you know, we weren't burning up. We weren't uh, tearing tearing Austin, Texas up anyway. We were kind of misunderstood, you yeah. know, and then. As a, as a band over there, jam bands were all the rage at that time in Austin. And we were not, we weren't that. We were trying to do concise pop, three and a half minute songs, four minute songs. And so we were a little bit misunderstood while we were there. So we weren't really lighting it up. So it was kind of a good time to step back and reflect. But Jimmy stayed on over there. Yeah, I stayed. I stayed, playing a few other bands, and play, continued playing bass in the band, Shelly King's band, and then a band called the Apaches of Paris. And y'all lit and, it up. Yeah, Apaches of Paris was a band that was already kind of happening in Austin. They had a really good following, and their bass player, 
quit and and I tried out and got the job and that was a really cool experience we we played um, a lot around Austin and in Texas and New Orleans and a few other places and that that was a that was a really cool band experience for me yeah yeah, yeah. so you're back in Shreveport what what brought you to Muscle Shoals I, I went back to Shreveport after the Texas thing to regroup, figure out what was next, bury my dad, hang out, and just try to figure out what was next. And so what was next in my mind was to become a professional songwriter. And so I played gigs at night and made up my mind to wake up every day during the day and write songs. And I did, I wrote a lot of songs. And um, started taking trips around and started sending tapes out just to anybody, anywhere that would listen to uh, see if I could get some kind of an opportunity to break into the record business. And in 95, this guy that I had played drums with relocated to Little Rock, Arkansas and wound up getting a record deal. And and the guys he was in the band with were huge fans of Muscle Shoals. And they came over here to fame in 95 and cut a record. And while they were here, my buddy who was the drummer started telling the Hall family about me and that I was back back over there in Shreveport, you know, writing songs and, and then I and then, you know, that I was talented and whatnot. And so the Hall family invited me to send songs. So I started sending songs to Rick and Rodney. And uh, over the course of the next year and a half or so, we we started getting serious about doing doing business. And so they finally offered a couple of different contracts to me in 1997. One of them was a production deal where they would record me, pay for it all, put me in front of record labels, do what they call showcases, and try to get a deal. And the other thing they offered me was a publishing contract. And so I signed both of those deals in 1997. And that production deal lasted about a year, and we wound up not getting a record deal at that time. But I, I started getting cuts, songs cut by country artists about a year and a half after I had been there. And so... And that's what I had been looking for, an opportunity somewhere, somehow, to make a, to carve a life and a living out in the music business beyond just playing covers and bars, which is all I had really basically ever done up, to, up till then. Yeah. So you're working at Fame, and then I heard they were looking for an engineer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and he didn't. He didn't move here immediately either. He no, commuted. I commuted from Shreveport mm -hmm. for a while for a few till two thousand one. Yeah, several years. He would drive eight hours, spend the week or three yeah. four days, and then yeah. drive home and play gigs on the weekend. Yeah, man. So that's that's a point I wanted to make because that's that's how that's how dedicated he was to it. But um, I don't think they were looking for an engineer. James just you know we obviously stayed in touch because we we remained friends, but. He, you know, started telling me about this place called Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which I was was not really on my radar. And um, 
So we came over and visited a couple of times. I guess this yeah. would have been in like 99 or something like yeah. that. And uh, we, we came over and visited, went to lunch with Rodney Hall and, and saw the studio and stayed at Rodney's house and just had a big time. And, and man, when I saw what James was doing and how he was plugged in here, I was just really, really, really wanted to be a part of it. And um, so essentially I just said, look, if I, if I moved over here, could I you know, work and, and learn, basically intern at your studio. And he said, sure, but I'm not guaranteeing you anything. So my wife, Angie, who's always been very supportive of me, said, well, let's try it. So so we moved over here with no guarantee of a job at all. Actually, I got a day job in Decatur to pay the bills. and uh, But it just so happened when I got here, after about three months, they hired me part-time and after a few more months, the staff engineer at the time, Don Shrigley, had been there for like 10 years, and he was kind of looking for a change. And so he 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 said, I'm, I'm moving on. And I was the guy that had been there, you know, proven that I was serious and I wanted to be there. And so that's how I became a, a, the staff engineer at Fame. Was that the first time you were plugged in with a recording studio Absolutely. like that? Absolutely, yeah. I had, I had heard about... A software called Pro Tools when I was living in Austin and it really fascinated me because before then you know your best shot at having a good home studio would be an ADAT which I always oh. I always wanted an ADAT and I never had one of course I, oh, I know yeah. now that they were they were kind of troublesome pieces of gear but um, and they were very expensive and so when I started hearing about this Pro Tools you know where you could have a computer and you could have unlimited tracks and all this stuff that fascinated me, so I bought kind of one of the earlier versions of Pro Tools, a Digi 001, and I just started learning it on my own in Austin. I set it up in my living room and started learning that software. And uh, so, yeah, I'd never worked at a studio. I had recorded at a studio a few times. But, but yeah, I just showed up over here knowing how to run Pro Tools, which at that time was valuable because all the studios were moving to Pro Tools, you know. And uh, so Don Shrigley actually helped me a lot as well. He taught me a lot about, you know, how to get, you know, how to patch and how to get a sound <laughs> through the board and things like that. So, um, but yeah, that was my first first job in a studio. Yeah, I got lucky. <laughs> yeah, it's a good first gig. Yeah. And a little while later, you actually did a record over there too was it called Muscle Shoals City Limits yeah we did a record we did Jimmy and I together and Rodney yeah it was cool and and, I, and it was fun well Rodney had started I guess Rodney had started Muscle Shoals Records I don't remember if he had started right before I got there or right after but it was a new kind of yeah. a thing they had started this record company yeah and we did a record on the decoys that was one of the first records I did and cool then record. shortly after Russell that, Smith. we did a Russell Smith record, which was really great. And that's a cool record. And then we did a James record. So all those were on Muscle Shoals Records yeah. Yeah. that Fame had, had started, a record label that Fame had started. Um, yeah. So what were, after Fame, what were you guys' next steps? I didn't leave Fame until a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I... Uh, I was there for about three years, and I was the staff engineer for their publishing company. And um, you know, 
one thing led to another and I ended up leaving fame and had a had a studio in my bedroom at my house. At that time I'd kind of started developing some clients and so I set up camp in my house and had a studio there. Um, then I went back to work for fame. I went This time I went back and worked for Rick directly. He called and asked if I would come work for him. I did that for about six or eight months. But I, at that point, I really wanted to have my own studio. I wanted to have my own building and my own studio and found a little building over here in downtown Sheffield, leased it for about three years, and then found the building that I'm in now in downtown Sheffield and bought it coming up on 10 years ago and just started the Nuthouse Recording Studio. And, and you know, so that's what I've been doing. Yeah, and you co continued writing for Fame. I did. I wrote for Fame and, you know, being a professional songwriter, it's a full-time job, man. You know, they they want you to be, you know, ready and willing to, to write a lot of songs. And so that was cool with me. So from 1997 to the summer of 2012, that's it's about 14 and a half years I spent with them. It was a really good, really good, four, really good 14 and a half years. Wrote a lot of songs. We had a really good run. I had about 30 songs recorded by artists and um, three of them that were, you know, bona fide hits and one of them that uh, a song I wrote with Gary Nichols, it cracked into the top 40, but it didn't get much further than that. I think it peaked at number 38. But yeah, man, just, and that, that basically involves just uh, setting up appointments with people, other songwriters other professional songwriters regularly you know it's kind of like a nine to five it's a it's it's pretty much a day job and uh so that involved a lot of trips back and forth to nashville and then some some nashville songwriters would travel down here and then it involved a, a lot of studio recording um when i wrote something that i was fired up about i would record it and uh and i learned how to play a few different things and learn how to play bass well enough to play on my own stuff and and then you know we programmed a lot of drum loops because uh, it was a little bit because 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 it sounded so authentic there for a while and uh so i did a tremendous amount of studio work and and a, and a lot of writing and so that's what my life revolved around for years and years i mean it still does but for years and years, you know, and uh, and I also learned a lot from Don Strigley about how to perform in the studio, which is an entirely different, entirely different thing from a crowd of people in a in a honky tonk. It's there's no comparison, and uh, he taught me stuff like which, how heavy or light of a pick to use when you're playing an acoustic guitar track, which you know things like that never occurred to me, you know, but he, you know taught me how to approach recording and so that was cool and uh, you know being at fame and just you know getting to do this for a living is like getting a master's degree I would think I never really went to college but I mean it was just I'm all you know just learning everything there is to know about stuff like not not running the knobs that that's not what I mean, but just like how to perform in the studio, the craftsmanship of songwriting, you know, uh, 
catching inspiration and, and, and capitalizing on it and stuff like that and, uh, and just uh, a, a total education. Learning how to, you know, hear yourself in headphones. Heck yeah. And what that's supposed to sound like, because that throws people for a loop, you know. When, Singing you know, like there's no tomorrow, yeah. man. I never, I, you know, I was, I was able to sing in the studio, yeah. uh, which apparently is not that easy of a thing to do. Some yeah. people have a hard time with that. And that's the great thing about landing here in Muscle Shoals, or I mean, I guess other, you know, recording centers around the world, but there's such a heritage of making records in this town. And then folks like Don Trickler, Alan Schulman, or Rodney, or Rick, or all that, Walt Aldridge, Brad Chris, or people that, you know, helped us and taught us and, and passed the, the, you know, the tips and tricks and techniques along, you know. Um, Heck yeah. You have to be in a place like this to learn that. It's not, you know, it's not just second nature, that's for sure. Oh, man, and getting to write with these veteran songwriters, wow, man, it was so amazing. You know, I mean, I was, have been lucky to have a voice people like to hear and to be able to play. But uh, I learned so much about writing from these other people because I did write all those songs that I said I wrote back home, but they were all pretty much by myself. Never had anybody to bounce ideas off of. And so getting over here and writing with, with older people who had been having hits and stuff like that for a long time, I learned so much about the craftsmanship. And I learned about how it's, you know, more about perspiration than it is about inspiration, which is a which is something I didn't really, you know. I used to think, you know, you get an inspiration at 3.30 in the morning and you jump up and write a song down. I, I didn't understand the discipline and the craftsmanship of songwriting, not really, till I got here and began to learn that. Well, how these people get up and every day and they and they come together and they meet and stuff like that. And just my songs just start got exponentially better with serious songwriters in the room with me. Like really they got a lot better. And I learned so much from guys like Walt Aldridge, Russell Smith and others. Lots of others. I got to write with some really incredible people so far. It's been fun. Yeah. And you on the other side of town here in Sheffield, you you established a nut house That's almost right. 10 years ago. Yep. And uh, which I guess eventually ended up with you winning a Grammy for uh, for the Steel Drivers uh, 2016 album. Yeah. Was it? Uh, yeah. yeah. Bluegrass yeah. Grammy of the Year. Right. So... What tell us a little bit about those you know few years? How how did you know building the studio, kind of establishing it? How, how did that all work? Okay, well, you know it's interesting because um, in two thousand, when when I became the staff engineer at Fame, there was in, including James, there was also uh, a guy named Gary Nichols who was just getting a start as well. He got signed to a publishing deal and had a band called Gulliver that I was recording on the weekends. There was a guy named Jason Isbell who was a signed, a signed writer at, at Fame and um, he started working on a solo record. We started working on that together. And so there were several of us at that time that were trying to kind of get a start. Angela Hacker, you know, she was there. Zach Hacker was there. A lot of us, you know, uh, Scott Boyer III, Jimbo Hart, you know, we were all 
figuring things out together and really all hungry and really working hard and and just trying to make something happen you know and so these are people that that were around in in the beginning of my career in in in, in the studio business so fast forward many years later um you know, most of most of the work I've got in the studio has been it's just word of mouth. You know, you do a good job for one person, someone hears that record and they go, "Hey, you know, this is cool. I want to work with you." So, it just kind of grows over the years, which I I love. I love that. I love that that my business has grown organically like that. Uh, I guess if I was in New York or L.A., I would have to advertise, but I I don't here. You know, so um, Gary Nichols uh, ended up. Uh, joining the steel drivers after Chris Stapleton left. Um, I don't know exactly what year that was, but I'm, I'm saying that Chris probably left in like 13, 12, 12, maybe 13. Maybe even a little sooner. Uh, okay, and so Gary Nichols got the gig and started touring with the steel drivers who were an established band at the time. And, of course, Stapleton took off on his own. Um, they did a record called Hammer Down, um, with Gary. That was the first record they did with Gary. Um, they recorded it in Nashville, uh, but Gary, we did all of his vocals here because uh, Gary and I were really tight and he wanted to. He wanted me to be involved and he wanted to work here. So I cut all of his vocals and it was a good album, did okay. And um, then the next record they were going to do in 2015, um, Muscle Shoals was really, you know, hot at the time. The movie had come out. It was kind of a light on Muscle Shoals, and a lot of people were wanting to be associated with Muscle Shoals. And so I think Gary kind of lobbied pretty hard for the steel drivers to uh, to uh, do do their record in Muscle Shoals, or, or Sheffield. Um, so so anyway, they, they thought it was a good idea, so we, we cut the new steel drivers record here in 2015. It ended up being called the Muscle Shoals Recordings. And... Um, the Steel Drivers have been nominated for a Grammy three other times, but never won. So, you know, I knew we, we had a good record. I think everybody felt pretty good about it. We cut it, you know, a lot of it mostly live on the floor. There was a few overdubs, but a lot of Gary's vocals were live. And, and uh, so it had a good feel. And we turned it into the, the mastering engineer who actually worked for the label, Concord Records, Rounder Records. And um, that was the first time that someone said, man, this is a great record. You guys are going to get nominated for a Grammy, which blew my mind because I, you know, wow. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. So sure enough, we got nominated for a Grammy, and um, which is just unbelievable, you know, on its own. So um, Angie and I, my wife and I decided we're going to get a ticket and go to the show. You know, I mean, why not? I mean, this may be the only time this happens. I don't know. So we go out to LA and go to the Grammys. We're up against Ralph Stanley and some other, you know, big name bluegrass folks. And we show up and it's, uh, our categories during the day and we walk in and we immediately find Jason Isbell and his crew. And he was nominated for a couple of Grammys. And Rodney Hall was there. And uh, so here's me, Gary Nichols, Rodney Hall, and, and Jason Isbell sitting together at the Grammys waiting for our category to come up. Well, Jason's category comes up. He wins a Grammy. So we're all just freaking out, you know. I mean, one of our, one of our own just won a Grammy. So 
So there we are. Our, our category is next. I mean, literally right after Jason. So we're still kind of on a high from him and almost have to, you know, miss the, the fact that we're up. So, so here we are, Bluegrass Album of the Year, Steel Drivers. We win it. So, you know, it's just unbelievable, man. I mean, we're just freaking out. It's just, just it was just one of the coolest things in the world to, to, to have that happen, to be recognized and for us to be together there. It was just, it was fantastic. So there you go. Yeah. Well, there's some of the other projects that you did here that are really meaningful to you, although they might have not gotten the exposure that that particular record did. Well, I mean, you know, James and I did a record together last year was last year we'll get to that okay all right put that one on hold (laughs) okay oh man that's a tough question i I recently did a record on an artist named brandon wide that i really like a lot brandon's an artist from indiana he lives in nashville now really really um really good guy and i think he's got a lot of potential as an artist i'm real proud of that um man you're gonna have to help me it's hard for me to think of uh, all the stuff i've done here um uh, what else? I don't know. You didn't Andreas. do them all here, but you worked yeah. on a couple of Buffett records. That yeah. That would be cool. Yeah, I worked on several Buffett records. Not here, uh, but... Not here, yeah. On um, location. <laughs> yeah. We got to work in Key West at Buffett yeah. Studio. and but, Yes. But you, you did, like, Billy Bob Thorne. Yes, Billy Bob Alabama Thorne. Alabama Shakes, you did something. Yeah. And that other guy, R&B guy from California. Yeah, Chris Pierce. Is, Chris Pierce did a record on him. He's a great soul singer from, from L.A., um yeah billy bob came in and cut some tracks here uh billy ray cyrus we redid we recut achy breaky heart (laughs) (laughs) did a new version of that and uh which was written by a good buddy of mine don von tress who i work with on an ongoing basis um clarence carter uh did we cut some percy sledge stuff here uh percy's last two albums he did a gospel album and a and a uh, wow. christmas album and we cut some vocals here that's got cool. to work with him and actually we filmed uh percy's interview for the muscle shoals movie here mm-hmm. um but man i'm forgetting a ton of people you know uh jason's been here working jason isbel actually produced uh, a couple or a couple of the steel drivers tracks on that album and um cut a really cool thing with jason isbel and john paul white here um for an alabama tribute album we did a version of old flame in a minor key with them doing a duet which was a really cool thing but um and worked with the blind boys of alabama we cut some stuff at fame and i mixed it here and that got nominated for a grammy um but we didn't win but um anyway man I've, i've gotten to do so many amazing things it's hard to recall specific ones to be honest with you <laughs> yeah but a couple and andreas of... werner i've done lots of andreas werner stuff here if you wanted or not. the decoys yeah we did a cool decoys live record here yes and, that's uh, cool that's really cool, cool decoys live yeah. record the here. carla russell record carla russell record yes. Shoot. Yeah. yeah but anyway you guys a couple of years ago kind of reunited in the studio to make a record yes and uh Tell me a little bit how that one came about. What was the? Well, how I'll, did you I'll, decide I'll, to I'll do start it? and then I'll turn it over to you. I mean, what? so we already mentioned that James did a record at Fame called uh, Muscle Shoals City Limits, yeah. which was a cool record. I was super proud of it, proud to be a part of it. But that that record was kind of a collection of 
demos and different recordings and things like that. So in the back of my mind, I always wanted to do a James LeBlanc record where we went in and cut a record, you know, with purpose, you know, and with a band. And, and so um, we started talking about that a, a few years ago and I approached him with it. It was after I'd won, won the Grammy with Steel Drivers and, and um, before that, he didn't want to work with you. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. No, I just think we had a little bit of renewed inspiration, I guess. But anyway, so there was something that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And so he agreed to do it. And 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 so we did it. Yeah. And I. I uh, after I left fame in the summer of 2012, in the spring of 13, I signed a new publishing deal with the BM, BMG Publishing. And I, and so I wanted to, you know, give them my full attention, and, and I didn't want any distractions from being a professional songwriter. So that's what I did. As, as a, a new company, new opportunity, new deal, I needed to build up a brand-new catalog and start from scratch. So I really focused on that. And cutting a record and trying to be an artist and a professional songwriter, you know, is challenging. And it can be a distraction uh, if you're not careful. So that's, you know, why we didn't do another one before now. But uh, I got kind of excited after Jimmy won the, won the Grammy. And I was just thinking maybe this is a good time to do it. And, and uh, I had a few... Uh, uh, things I needed to get worked out in my personal life. And so I got a few things worked out in my personal life and just thought it was a good time, and I hit him up about it. And he thought it was a good idea, so we started planning it in the early part of, what, 16? Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Planning it meaning just started cutting guitar vocals of a bunch of songs to get down to the essence of what we wanted to do. And what what we wanted it to sound like, and uh, it was really neat for me. I got to go through back through my whole catalog and figure out my favorite songs, and so I, I cut a couple of BMG songs that I liked while I was there, that I that I wrote while I was with those folks, and then I went some of the songs I went way back to um, my fame time, and. And uh, I wasn't concerned about, you know, is a song new or is a song old because nobody, you know, nobody knows how old a song is unless you tell them how old the song is. So I just wanted to cut my favorite stuff. And I believe I did that. I, be I really believe I did that. Uh, Nature of the Beast is the title track. And, and uh, I wrote it with a guy named Travis Meadows and another guy named Matt Warren. But Travis Meadows is my new hero in in the in the singer songwriter business he is he's really amazing and i got turned on to him a few years ago and listened to a couple of his records and got to write with him and uh so that's a highlight for me uh on the on the on the song on the record and then 4885 is a song i wrote by myself about my house growing up back home and that's a highlight but we just got to do it the way we wanted to do it. Just it was just me and, and you. Yep. And there are not only like the family connection in the songs, but also in the people who 
were part of the record. Yeah. Angela Hacker, who has My, not only been a collaborator of yours and duet partner, but also a longtime partner absolutely. in life. Absolutely. My, My better half. She, she's a big part of it. And so is your son, Dylan, yeah, who wrote the right. song, played guitar on it. Yeah. How does it feel for you to have a kid that's kind of following your footsteps? It's amazing. I love it. I'm proud of him. He's so talented. He uh, had the unique opportunity to grow up in the record business. Uh, you know, he was walking around in the halls of fame, hanging out with guys like Larry Byram, Russell Smith, hanging out with Rick Hall. Just, just, he's been a part of this community since he was 10 years old. And, uh, but his talent is God-given. And I showed him how to play G, D, and A, and E. But, I mean, I, I can't take just a whole hell of a lot of credit for what he's become because, I mean, man, he's, he just he got so good so fast. And uh, he got his record deal uh, when he was like 19 years old. So he's been making records and traveling all over the world since then. But I taught him some of the basics, you know, but I mean, he's just uh, the. I remember the first song he ever wrote when he was about ten years old. It was a damn good song. <laughs> it only had two chords, but it was a damn good song. I remember the world is talking about you. Oh man, yeah. I, I mean, you know, he was just, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we he he was in the studio, yeah. working just like the rest of us. Yeah. And um, and um, pestering and, us to record him. <laughs> yeah, man. We, <laughs> <laughs> cut, cut, yeah, cut his songs and yeah. stuff like that, and it just feels great, man. To uh, my whole life's been about music, the love of it, being in it, making a living at it, man. I, I love it. I love waking up every day and thinking, all I really have to do today is either write, play, or sing. <laughs> and that's really pretty cool. I mean, I don't, I don't know what more a person could really yeah. possibly ask for, but I'm I'm super proud of Dylan. He's getting ready to cut his fourth record with a record label called ATO Records. Out of I think they're out of Massachusetts, and he's um uh, just doing really really well with it right now. Very proud of him. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy, how is it producing? One of your very best friends. Well, you know, I, it's it's fantastic. And, and in the very beginning, I knew we were going to co-produce this record. I mean, first of all, James is an amazing producer and himself. He does, you know, he doesn't need me. But, I mean, we, we, we've worked creatively together for a long time. And so it was great, man. I mean, we just, we went through the songs together. We, we picked the songs that we both liked, you know. We went back and forth on some of that. But... But in the end, we both signed off on all the songs. Uh, you know, I feel like I helped. You know, I, I helped him get get some of his vocal performances, and mm -hmm. which were not, which is not hard to do with James. You know, and uh, so it was just a joy, man. I mean, you know, we just we just put our heart and soul into it, and and just made the best record we could, and and I think it shows, and I think people people react to it, but. Um, I, I love producing records. I, I, you know, several years ago, I mean, I was mainly a recording engineer for, for, for most of the time that I've been here, but I started trying to do a little producing a few years ago, and, and that's my passion now. I love to, to be in that seat, but mainly I love to co-produce with an artist because, 
uh, you know, I'm not the type of producer that wants to put his stamp on things. I want to, I want to help the artist realize their vision and be, you know, the best version of themselves, you know. So I'm, I'm just there to kind of help, help that along. So we'll continue, you know, co-producing records together uh, as long as he wants to and I want to, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing that because it's, it's great. So you know? what, what's next for you guys? Well, we're about to start recording a new record, which uh, I believe is going to be a James LeBlanc and the Winchesters album. A lot gonna, more Winchesters, yeah. a lot less LeBlanc. We're going to yeah. incorporate Angela, yeah. get her singing on it. She's way too talented not to be a lot more involved in what we're doing. Yeah. And everybody agrees with that. Yeah. So we're getting it, getting a plan together, you know, trying to trying to play as many gigs as we can gathering songs for the next project and yeah. we've got the facility here yeah. as soon as we're ready to go we're gonna pull the trigger on another project yeah. which will probably happen i don't know soon yeah soon. it needs to happen soon because we need to get something i'd like to get something out in the fall or something if possible you know and uh we're excited about it we've got several songs already picked out and um yeah man it's just this is what we do <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, I wish you guys just the best with the upcoming project and all Thank the you. you guys touring activities too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And hopefully it'll even do better than the even better than the current yeah. one. And it's Heck just, yeah. Hopefully so. Yeah. yeah. And uh, thanks for being my guest today. Thank you. My Thank pleasure. you for having us. Thank you, Andreas. <laughs> This was the 23rd episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at the Nut House in Sheffield, Alabama. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. Oh, oh, oh.